Revelation chapter 15. This is the very word of God. Please give it your full attention. Verse 1. Then I saw another angel, or saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word now. Let us go to the Lord and ask that he would bless the preaching of his word. Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be with us now as we consider, contemplate, reason through, if we are able to reason through uh, the wrath of God. Help us, Lord, uh, to approach this lofty doctrine, this lofty subject with great care, with great humility. Help us, Lord, to bring to you all of our assumptions and presuppositions. Uh, Dear God, I decrease that you may increase. Be glorified in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, saints. I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath. We come this morning to just one verse, and actually to just one phrase this morning, and it's found at the very end of the first verse of the 15th chapter of Revelation, and here it is, because in them the wrath of God is finished. Here in Revelation, John is preparing to, you've heard this word before, recapitulate, recapitulate the coming judgment of God. In this chapter, we shall see, Lord willing, seven angels from the throne of God going forth from God's throne to judge the wicked. The acts of judgment are a display of the wrath of God. I'll say that again. The acts of judgment are a display of the wrath of God. Revelation chapter 14, if you will, verse 9 and 10. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine, here it is, of the wrath of God. Consider also Revelation fourteen nineteen. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress, here it is, of the wrath of God. Revelation chapter 15 and 1 is the one that we read this morning, so let's go to Revelation 15, 7. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of, oh, there it is again, the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And finally, 16, 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go forth. Uh, Go and pour out, I should say, on the earth, the seven bowls of, there it is, the wrath of God. Saints, five times within two chapters, we hear this phrase, the wrath of God. What is, what is the wrath of God? I remember one theologian saying concerning the bad news of the gospel, this, the gospel is God is angry. And what are you going to do about it? Well, brothers and sisters, I pose the same question to you. Is God angry? And if so, what are you going to do about it? If God is angry, let me ask you this. What has made him angry? Listen to the way I'm phrasing these things. If God is angry, what has made him angry? And does this idea that God is angry contradict the biblical witness that God is actually love? For one to say God is angry and for the scriptures to say God is love. Does that not seem like a contradiction? Which is it? Is God love or is God angry? Can he both be both at the same time? I know for many of us, maybe from my, maybe just from my own uh, um, upbringing, that when we did something that was um, sinful, usually we said we're make, we're, what was being said to us is that we're making God sad. And when we do something good, well, good, God is happy with you now. We're going to hear this phrase two more times in Revelation, and because I think it's proper for the people of God to have an orthodox theology proper, I thought it would be wise to consider with you the doctrine of divine impassibility and how we understand divine impassibility in light of the wrath of God. 
seem to be two opposing things, doctrines. Let me say that when we speak, I speak, of the eternal blessedness of God, I confess that I am out of my depths. This morning, this sermon, I pray that it would be a sermon, uh, not more of a lesson, but a sermon. I, I confess that I am out of my depths. I am thankful, very thankful to Pastor Isaiah, who gave me much support in preparation for this sermon, and also uh, the talks and the many resources that he was kind enough, and let me also say patient enough with me uh, to provide. Uh, I appreciate Pastor Isaiah very much, so now then, let us consider. Also, um, if you want a better treatment of divine impassibility, go to 2017 in our sermon series, in our sermons. 2017, Pastor Isaiah does a sermon just called Divine Impassibility, where the whole sermon is just on that. My first point is divine impassibility. So number one, divine impassibility. What is divine impassibility? M, I'm saying uh, I am passibility. This may be the first time that you have ever heard this phrase or even this doctrine, divine impassibility. It is appropriate then to begin with a, at least a scriptural basis for this doctrine. Isaiah does a, an exposition of this script, of this scriptural, of, of this scripture that I'm about to say to you. I am not going to. If you want to hear an exposition, go back to that sermon. But it's found in Acts chapter 14. In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas, uh, are, heal a man by the power of the Holy Spirit and they are in Greece. The locals thought that the pagan false gods of Zeus and Hermes had come down and they began to offer worship to Paul and Barnabas. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are then appalled by this act of worship. They resist and they shout out to these men. And most theologians reference this verse in the King James because of its literal translation. So listen to this. Here's what they say in reference to offer that's being, in reference to worship that's being offered to them. Acts 14, 15. Sirs, why do ye these things? Here's what they say. We also are men of like passions with you. And preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which is which made heaven, earth, and the sea, and all things therein. There it is. There is the at least the one of the scriptural references, because someone might say, You mean that's it? That that's our that's our scriptural basis for God is impassable, which we'll get to in a moment. That's one of the references. Um we really have all of the scriptures to tell us about God's perfections. We have all of the scriptures that reveal to us that God is impassable. Now, what does it mean? We're going we're gonna to work our way to it, okay? If you're familiar with our confession, you will find it in chapter 2 of our confession, paragraph 1, and here's what it says. Uh, our God is but one living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. No problems there. Here we go. A most pure spirit, invisible. Now, here's the withouts. Without body, without parts. We're okay there. And here's the one that we usually have a problem with. And without passions. God has no body. God has no parts. And also, God has no passions. For most, upon reading this chapter and paragraph of our confession, the word that often jumps off of the page is this, that God doesn't have passions. That he is without them. Again, he doesn't have them. Now, someone might say, what, what do you mean God doesn't have passions? Of course God has passions. He's passionate for me. Right? Many protest that they initially, because they initially conclude that the confession is saying, and that we are saying, that God doesn't love you, actually. Or that God doesn't, let's say it this way, God doesn't intensely love you. See that? That God is not passionate for you, and to think for one moment that that God does not have intense, burning, passionate love for you is, to quote the Prince's Bride, inconceivable. Well, let me burst some bubbles this morning. God, in fact, is not passionate for you. This greets for some, for some to say, you've got to be kidding me. Where's the exit? They protest. Haven't you heard Crowder's song, How He Loves? You know the lyrics. Don't act like you don't know the lyrics. He is jealous for me. Love like, love, loves like a hurricane. And I, and I am the tree bending beneath the winds of his mercy. You, some of you are smiling because you know that song. Here's what it's, and I realize just how great your affections are for me. 
Crowder could also say, and I realize just how passionate you are for me. You know that song, don't you? I see your smiles. Saints, I submit to you that this song is presenting to you and I a passable God. I, I don't deny and cannot deny that God loves, but in the manner in which this is understood as placing God while still being holy, let me slow down, and while still being God on a very similar platform as man, that, that God and man are on, are on an even playing field, if you will. I think the, impo- uh, the opponents of divine impassibility, God without passions, would argue, see, this is why I don't, this is why, I, this is why I am not reformed, they might say. This is why I don't believe in that doctrine, because you believe in a God who is cold. You believe in a God who is distant, a God who is, in fact, unloving, who is not passionate. And when you go to some churches, what do they most often express? Their, 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 their songs are, are, are passionate. They're singing and, and gestures. They're passionate. And we're saying, because God is passionate. Well, we are not at all saying that God does not love and that God is unloving, that God is cold, that God is distant, not in the, not, not in the least. In fact, the doctrine of impassibility, divine impassibility, does not exalt a God who does not passionately love, but rather it exalts a God who, listen to this, perfectly loves. It does not exalt a God who passionately loves, but rather it exalts a God who infinitely loves, who Loves immutably. And again, who loves perfectly. One who loves without increasing, listen to this, or decreasing in his love. One who is in fact love. And one whose love is impassable. Now, I'm going to get to, you're probably all waiting. Define it for me. Define it for me. Wait. The doctrine of divine impassibility, thank you, Pastor Isaiah, it flows out of simplicity. That God is simple. That God is, is, is not dependent upon or made up of parts like a human, but rather that all that is in God is God. And divine impassibility flows from divine immutability. That God does not change. And that within Him there is no alteration like you and I. There is no shift in shadows. There's no shifting like shadows do in God. Some will argue that this doctrine of divine impassibility contradicts over the overwhelming witness of Scripture, which describes, describes God as, in fact, grieving, as God being regretful, as God being angry, as God having so much passion that He sent His only Son to die for us on a cross, which is called the Passion. So how are we to make sense of this? Well, let's begin with some basics again. The phrase... Um, body parts or passions that we find in our confession, it does not originate with our confession, the framers of our confession. But by including it, the framers of our confession are aligning themselves with the orthodox way of speaking about God. They're saying by including this in the confession, confession, we are orthodox in terms of our theology proper, how we view God. Prior to the 18th century, it would have been impossible to find a theology proper that did not affirm and give deep consideration to the doctrine of divine impassibility. You would not find anybody, what I'm saying is, you would not find anybody who denied it. The language is probably coined by uh, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, Cranmer in the 1540s who added it to the 39 articles in the 1600s. Meaning this, it's not an exclusively reformed doctrine. So don't say, I'm reformed, I'm in, I believe in an impassable God. Actually, everyone from the Greek Orthodox, reformed John Calvin, not reformed John Wesley, um, Catholics Aquinas and Bonaventure confess the impassable God. It is an Orthodox doctrine. Say what you will about Jacob Arminius. He too confessed the impassable God. Uh, Arminius is the, the, from whom we get Arminians, right? Jacob Arminius confessed the impassable God. In the 17th century, John Owen said, it is agreed by all that those expressions of repenting, grieving, and the like are figurative, wherein no affections are to be intended. Essentially, everyone agrees that God is impassable. It's not unique to Reformed theology or to Reformed folk. It's not a Calvinistic doctrine. 
nor is it exclusively held by Reformed Baptists. It is a small c Catholic doctrine. It's for the church universal. It is, it is an essential perfection of God that we must confess when speaking properly about God. So you don't get to say, if we're speaking properly about God, you don't get to say to your children, you're making God sad right now. You're, if we do that, we are teaching them not to have a good theology proper about God. If we lose impassibility, we will lose the creator and creature distinction. Why? Because we are passable creatures. God is not. We're going to get to that. We must resist the trend to narrow the gap between the creator and the creation. We must resist the trend of making God like us. So what's meant by the word um, or term passion? Let's deal with this now. The term passion is derived from the Latin word passio. Now, here's what's important, which means to suffer, to undergo or to submit. What does a passio mean? It means this to suffer. To undergo or to submit. Now, this may be contrary to what we think passions are. We may say, no, just like intense love. We'll get to that. It's rooted in something human. When we think, uh, when we think of passions, we often think of an emotive state. We are to think of, any, we are to think of an emotive state of being. Listen to this. That comes upon humans. By diverse experiences. When we think of passions, we are to think of an, an emotional state that comes upon you by diverse experiences. Based upon different things that happen to you, your emotions will change. That's what, that's what, that, that's what it means to be passable. You are changed by experiences. Your emotions are changed by experiences. Passion is an undergoing. It is a happening to. It's an emotive, emotional experience that brings to its subject a new state of actuality that was not previously present. Uh, right now, you may be sitting calmly. In a few moments, there may be something that makes you smile. You've just become passable. Uh, right now, you're maybe uh, smiling, and then in a moment, you're going to stop smiling. You've become passable again. Again, there are experiences happening to you right now that are causing an emotive state of change within you. Expressed on your face. Expressed on head nods. Expressed on amens, Right? Therefore, we are not dependent upon those happenings, or therefore we are, I should say, we are dependent upon those happenings in order to experience new states of being. Uh, let me give you an example. If I want to feel happy, just me, if I want to feel happy because I don't have perfect happiness within me, I need to be moved to happiness by something happening to me. That makes sense? I will undergo, I will suffer unto Happiness because something good has happened to me. Give me a, give me a, a piece of cake and a large glass of milk and I am a happy man. But I'm dependent upon the cake and the milk in order for me to be happy in that manner. When it's all gone, I'll be sad because it's all gone. Right? You ever eat something in a dairy and you start to cry because you're near the end? In order for my emotional state to change, I need something to change it, namely cake. You know this, don't you? The day just seems to be better when good things happen to you because you are a passable creature. You get a check in the mail, the day is really good, isn't it? A, a, good, a, a healthy check in the mail. You, you get a bill in the mail, the day is not as exciting, is it? Every passion is a state of being that has a cause. There is no state of being without passion. It's called passive potency. Technical word, passive, shouldn't be that hard, Potency, potential, right? The potential to change on account of undergoing passions, of, of undergoing an experience, passive potency. You can change, you have the potential to change depending on what takes place in your life. When we talk about passions, the Orthodox are speaking about the mode in which actualities come upon us. And what they're saying is, here's it, here it is, that's not true about God. That's what we're getting at. What we're saying is the passive potency is not true about God. That God does not have the potential based upon undergoing experiences to change, to make his love for you increase or his his disdain for sin decrease. It remains the same. God is not dependent or caused by anything because he is, in fact, I am. 
This is a discussion of divine being and actuality, but don't be confused. Again, God is not like us. Falling in love is another example that is most common used by theologians. It is a passion, not because it is intense, although it is. You, you and I, I all know what it means to feel intense love for someone. We're going to get to what that intensity is like. It is an undergoing of change. That's why it's so intense. You are undergoing a change in this process of loving someone. You've gone from seeing them to liking them. Pastor Isaiah said in his sermon, to like liking them and then like, like, liking them. And then I think I really love you. That's why it feels so intense. That's why the heart begins to beat faster when you begin to see them more and more. Because this this uh, this change is coming upon you that's in, that's intensifying. And it seems like, um, and it is, passionate love. It's so intense because your love for them is growing. You are changing. I came to love my wife. My wife, thanks be to God, came to love me. We both went we both underwent this this change called love. The undergoing is, is experience that we were having with one another. Playing music together, me hearing her sing, which probably be, would be, no, at least one of the things that drove me even closer to her. You never heard my wife sing. She sings like an angel. Gradually, something came upon the both of us that, that changed our mode of being, namely love. The, the definition that we call it is, it's love. I always say that my, that I've always loved my wife and that she always loved me, but she just didn't know it yet, right? My, her love for me was an undergoing of change, an undergoing of passion. There was a time when she did not love me, but eventually she was altered. She suffered. That's the proper way of saying it. She suffered in that she underwent a change. Passion is a suffering unto. It's a, it's an undergoing. Oh, for 10 years of my marriage and 13 years of us being together, we are undergoing change. And it is for the better. One theologian said, I have been suffering in my marriage for 20 years in light of this doctrine of passion. Probably speaking, he's saying he has been ever increasing, ever suffering, ever undergoing in his love for his wife. That is, of course, getting better and better. You can say, men, to your wife, you make me suffer. <laughs> Wives, you can say to your husbands, and you also make me suffer. You are undergoing a, an increase. You can say to your children, you, you really make me suffer, right? Those things are properly said because there is an increase of change, and hopefully it's for the better in your love and care for them. Some movement, some alteration has taken place. The word that the younger people use, and it's interesting, the word younger people use when they um, find themselves, and they use it unwittingly, when they find themselves having affections for someone, is they, they call, uh, I have a crush, look at that word, I have a crush on them. That person is my, think it's just the language, how interesting it is. Uh, they are my crush. What? A crush is, is something that's pressed, right? It's something that's that's undergoing this kind of squeeze. That's exactly what's happening to passable creatures. We are undergoing something. We are being crushed by experiences that are changing us. It's an undergoing of suffering, a new mode that is coming upon you because of the loveliness, as it were, of another. One might say, but that's not the way that I think of passion. But that's in fact what it actually means. You have the passion of love. You can undergo love. Your love is always altering. My love is always altering. And what we are saying with divine impassibility is that's not true of God. What we're saying is the way that I've just described my undergoing of change with my wife is not true with God. God does not begin to love you. He's always loved you. Divine impassibility means that God undergoes no effective change and he feels, listen to this, no actions of creatures upon himself. When you do something, God doesn't go, oh, why? What are you doing? It means that God has no experience of the world even. If we're speaking technically, he's not undergoing an experience of creatures. 
Tom Winandy defines this, the doctrine in his book, Does God Suffer? Listen to this. I'm going to say it slowly. Impassibility is that divine attribute whereby God is said not to experience, listen to this, inner emotional changes of state, whether enacted freely from within or affected by his relationship and interaction with human beings and the created order. When Andy is essentially saying that there is nothing outside of God that causes God to undergo change and there is nothing inside of God that causes God to change. He doesn't undergo change. We do not make him undergo passions because he is impassable. What divine impassibility is saying is that God does not go undergo change in himself, in himself or outside of himself. There is nothing that can cause God or come upon God to affect change in him to something that he is not eternally. Consider again the love of God. The scriptural witness is that God is love. That God has loved us with an eternal love. That God has loved us to the uttermost. That there is nothing that we did that caused God to love us. Unlike our spouse, God did not have a crush on you. That moved him to eventually love you. He didn't and does not fall in love with us. Uh, God was not lonely and decided to create you and I so that he wouldn't be lonely anymore. Lonely is a, is a state that would, by creation, would cause God to change, meaning he would no longer be lonely. You go to your room sometimes, don't you? And you go, I'm lonely right now. I feel this state of emotion. I'm lonely. And then you go to your hangout with your family. And now I'm not lonely anymore, right? Sometimes we're still lonely even with, with, with our families. Weird. Rather, he has eternally, without beginning or end, and immutably, without change, loved us impassively. There is nothing that you can do to change that love. With a love that does not increase or decrease, it is a true and real impassable love. Praise God. A God that does not undergo the passion of love also does not undergo the passion of wrath. Now, here's what we're talking about today, right? Five times between two chapters. In the same way that God does not undergo the passion of love, God also does not undergo the passion of wrath. Passion is a modal term. It's a, it's a state of, of, it's a mode of being. Passions come upon and create change in the one who is undergoing the experience. We all and all of the Orthodox deny this to be true about God. I'm saying the same thing over and over again. And we don't want God to be like us, do we? (laughs) Does God love? Yes. But does he love like you and I love? No. And thanks be to God that he doesn't. um, Does God have wrath? Yes, which we're going to talk about in our second point. But does God wrath in the way that you and I wrath? No. And thanks be to God for that. Rather, he has loved us with an eternal love and an everlasting one. Finally, God cannot experience change, whether in his inner being or from his creation. In his intrinsic state, God cannot have emotional changes from within or without. From my former tradition, as I said before, uh, we would say to our kids, and they, it was said often, you, you, you're making God sad. We need to stop that, right? You're making God happy. We need to stop that. You cannot make a change come upon God. In God's essence or nature, he cannot experience emotional changes of of state of being. He is all that he is. God does not move, as I said this in a sermon, God does not move from emotive state A to emotive state B in the manner that a creature does. Today we're up, tomorrow we're down. God's not like that. These things are often caused by things outside of us and things within us. That is not true about God, right? The framers of our confession, falling in line with the Orthodox, confess that God is most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute. And if God has passions, he's none of those most. If God has passions like you and I, he is not most wise, not most free because he's dependent upon things. That change him. God is pure act. All that is in God is God. If God is passable, then he is no longer purely holy and all those other purely and most. So then, how do we make sense of the wrath of God in light of the impassibility of God? Let's go to point two. Our third point is going to be rather short. We have just uh, considered, and I say this, a brief introduction to divine impassibility. Uh, for fuller and I think 
probably much better treaties on the impassibility of God. There's plenty of other resources. Pastor Isaiah can point you toward them. How do we explain the many, many passages then that actually describe God as being passionate? You're familiar with the passages that describe God as regretting. Regretting to make someone a king, right? Uh, Being sorrowful that he made someone a king or put someone in a position of power. Being jealous, right? Uh, Unbelievers often will use, God is jealous. That doesn't seem like something that God should be. And also, God is angry. Let's deal with the passion of wrath, though. And I think in dealing with the passion of wrath, this might help, potentially help to make sense of some of the other anthropopathic passages. Saints, uh, let me say that what is going to be said is, is nearly, not nearly all that could be said about this. Let's consider some passages. John three thirty six. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Listen to this. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There's a wrath. Um, Ephesians, or I'm sorry, Ezekiel 25, 17. I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance, vengeance upon them. These seem pretty angry, like angry passages, don't they? Nahum 1, verse 2 through 6, but let's just deal with the first verses. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. These seem like very passionate passages. What do you do with them? Romans 2 and 5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. When God's judgment judgments will be revealed. We might as well just add, in wrath. <laughs> Saints, there are possibly hundreds of other verses that testify to the wrath of God. We've already considered five in Revelation. Let's begin with this affirmation then. We affirm all of what God's word says to be inspired by God and true. So we won't get from this moment. That's not what it, that's not what it says. No, we affirm all of what God's word says is God's word and it is true. Therefore, when the scriptures speak of the wrath of God, we submit ourselves to what God how God has revealed himself. That's important. When the scriptures reveal the wrath of God, we submit ourselves to how God has revealed himself. Our task then is to understand how we are to uphold God who does not undergo passions and one and the other, on the one hand, and then on the other, the passion of wrath. Is God wrathful? Negatively speaking, that's an important word, negatively speaking, yes. Why would I say negatively speaking? Because properly speaking about God, God is not wrathful. God is love. The language of wrath belongs to what theologians call apophatic language. Apophatic language. Apophatic language is also called negative theology, wherein we approach the divine by negation, saying what God is not. Or speak only in terms of what we what what may not be said about God who is perfectly blessed forever. Let me further explain what this means. When you think of wrath, we did this kind of study in our Sabbath school. When you think of wrath, even just the word wrath, what do you imagine? Just wrath itself. Don't don't equate it to God. Don't start pointing it heavenward. But just um, on human levels, when you think of the word wrath, what do you think of? Many of us, maybe just me. Wrath evokes thoughts of one who is filled with rage. One who needs to release rage. We know what it is to have rage, don't we? You ever been um, outraged? You ever had something where you go, I was so mad at that moment. What did you do? Right? How, how did you express it? It is rage, wrath. Is it's, it's an eternal passion. When provoked, that word is important, when provoked, manifests itself in a variety of ways. Some of the saints said something this morning. We yell, we throw things, we break things, punch things, right? Uh, I went to the grocery store the other day and a guy was wearing a cast on his arm. And I usually like to just make small talk with the checkout counters. And um, I said, what happened to your hand? He said, I I punched the wall. Why did you punch the wall? I was angry. I said, it looks like the wall beats you up. When we, when we are provoked to anger, sometimes one might go for a run. 
just needs to step outside, get some fresh air. Maybe, maybe just goes mute, says nothing, right? They go silent, don't want to talk to anybody, clench their teeth, get away from them before they explode, right? Whatever it is, we know what it is to be angry, to internalize it, and then we also know what it is to externalize it, to, to express wrath, but it must be provoked. Some of us sometimes are just mad for no reason, but there is reason because we begin to think of things and things just begin to make us angry even though no one has actually done something to us at that particular time. Right? We're moved to anger. Moved. That's important. Moved to rage. Moved to wrath. Now, let us ask this question further. When we rage, does our rage, does our wrath, listen to this word, always emanate, I did that like circling the word, always emanate, or originate, flow from an etern- internal holiness. When you are mad, is it because there, there's something holy within you that is produced out of you, anger and wrath? Meaning, is what caused or provoked the anger, the wrath, the rage, something holy within you that you're responding to that is unholy outside of you? Did anger flow from a good place? Of course, in the moment that we are angry, we often always feel that the manifestations of our anger is justified. We deserve to be angry. We deserved to express our anger and wrath in the way that we did. We, we, we deemed it at that moment, sometimes, as an appropriate expression of our outrage. If we're honest with ourselves, we should say no. Whenever I've been angry or wrathful, rage has come out. It's not always come from a place of internal holiness responding to external unholiness. Sometimes, most of the time, we're not justified in the way that we've expressed our wrath, are we? How often have you been upset, been angry, been even wrathful? And then once you've calmed down, you realize that you actually were not completely correct in your reasoning or your reaction. You ever been mad about something and realize you were actually were the one who was in the wrong? You ever been uh, mad at someone, took something out on someone and then realized uh, you were just as culpable as they were? You're you're just as guilty as they are. Or have you ever uh, been angry and realized it's all your fault, actually, not the other person's? And then when when we've expressed our anger, when we've yelled, when we've broken all the dishes uh, uh, and whatever else, beat something with a bat... Is everything always better after that? Well, you've got a bunch of broken dishes. Now you're fatigued, right? Um, the person that you've yelled at, now you need to restore the, them because you've, you've yelled at them, right? Now here's what we want to get to. Speaking properly about God, can we say this is ever true about God? Is it ever true that God is ever wrong in his judgments? No, he's not like us. We must always uphold the creator-creature distinction. He's not a man that he should repent. He is not like man. He does not have body parts or passions. We're, we're starting to bring these together, I think. But isn't wrath a passion? So, yes. So then how can it be said of God that he does not have passions? Yet over and over again, we read the Holy Scriptures, which we affirm to be true, that he in fact does have passions, namely wrath. John Davenant, Pastor Isaiah, thank you. The anger of God is not a, listen to this word, perturbation. Pertur- it means to be, you ever heard the word, I'm perturbed, right? It's not a perturbation of an excited mind, but rather, but, but the tranquil constitution of righteous judgment. When God is said, he says, when God is said to be angry, perturbation is not signified like what is in the mind of an angry man, but his vengeance takes the name, that's important, takes the name of anger. From human motions. The vengeance takes the name. The wrath takes the name of anger. From human motions. From the human perspective. Meaning, first God is not like man. When anger of God or wrath of God is declared, it's not similar to or equal to that of man. So when we've just described the way that we're angry, the way that we're wrathful, we don't say, and God's just like that. No. We must not imagine that God is like us. God said, you thought I was just like you, right? The anger or wrath of God is not from an excited mind either. Um, get cut off on the freeway. 
have someone steal your parking spot. Wait too long for your food to be served in a restaurant. We, all of us, will have an excited mind, won't we? Where are they? How did they get their food before me, right? How dare he cut me off? I was waiting for 20 minutes for a parking spot. He just pulled right in and took my spot. An excited mind begins to be angry. Anger, impatience, outrage will always be the excitement of our mind, but it's not the case with God. Why? Someone might say, because he's the impassable. Good, good answer. (laughs) Analogically speaking, in Revelation chapter 15, God is before a, listen to this, a glassy sea. Think about glass and it being a sea. It is um, analogically speaking, symbolically speaking, of calm before the throne of God. Seas, are they calm? They're always moving. And in different parts of the world, there is rage going on in different parts of the seas. But the sea before God is still like glass. It's peaceful like the one who sits on the throne who's not moved. In Revelation 15, 1, God is telling the angels, go forth and pour out the wrath. But before me is pure tranquility. The manifestations. Now, here we get to wrath. The outworkings, the outer workings, the manifestations or the operations of God's holiness is righteousness and righteousness. Listen to this is wrath. But does not come from an excited mind. But from a tranquil mind. So, no. Wrath is not in God, that God is storing up inside of himself and is just saying, I got to get this out of me. I've got to pour out some wrath. Now I feel better. Instead, holiness, positively speaking, is in God. Holiness and righteousness finds its expression, positive things, holiness and, holiness and righteousness finds its expression in negative things, namely justice, which reveals itself in wrath. Do you see that, that kind of, if you can draw that line, it begins with the holiness of God and righteousness of God, yes? And the way that God reveals His holiness and His righteousness is through wrath or judgment of, uh, upon sin. Someone said, okay, but, but God is displeased with sin. Yes, where does, this, where does this displeasure of sin come from? Does it come from God inside of Himself, from within Himself going, I really can't stand sin? Or God saying within him, or God within himself, being eternally blessed and holy, and because of his holiness, he cannot stand sin. It's not coming from a place where God says, oh, I'm so angry with sin. Instead, it comes from one who was eternally holy. And the expressions of his holiness is found in, in him uh, judging sin. So it's not properly said first in God. It's an expression of what is initially or what is properly first in God, which is holiness. How do I know this? Well, we speak positively about God, God's holiness and righteousness to the negative. How righteousness is revealed in wrath. This is why Paul can say in Romans chapter one and verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Against what? All ungodliness. And unrighteousness of men who, who do what? Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Or the manifestation of God's eternal holiness and immutable righteousness against sin is wrath. Wrath is not God's reaction to unrighteousness. Wrath is not God's reaction to unrighteousness. Wait, wrath is not God's reaction to unrighteousness. That, that is important. God is not undergoing. It's not his reaction to unrighteousness. That's, that's why I was like, what am I saying? It's not, he's not reacting to it. If he's reacting to it, that makes him what? Passable. God is not undergoing. He's not having the passion of anger expressed in wrath. Wrath, uh, it's not coming upon him. He's not looking at the wickedness of man and saying, if I pour out my wrath, then I'll be satisfied. Again, this would deny impassibility, immutability, simplicity. And again, God would not be most. Rather, the wrath of God reveals God's eternal holiness and therefore his eternal displeasure with sin.
that's rooted not in one being wrathful, but in one being holy. Not in anger as being one of his perfections. Anger is not a perfection of God. Wrath is not a perfection of God because those, improperly speaking, are not perfections. They're negative things. Rather, it's a manifestation in time and space of God's righteousness. Uh, why don't we, why don't we say that wrath is in God? Again, because wrath is negative. God is love. The scriptures never testify that God is wrath. But that God pours out his wrath. It flows from his perfections, from his eternal blessedness. Pastor Isaiah, in his sermon in 2017, wrath is said, oh no, actually this is recently he texted me, wrath is said of God with a certain negation. In contrast to how love is said of God without a certain negation. We don't make, when we say the love of God, we don't go, what we're not saying about God's love is, but when we speak about the wrath of God, we do make those negations. We go, what we're not saying about God is, we do that with wrath, but we don't do that with love. Does that make sense? That difference, when we evaluate it and distribute it in, 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 I'm sorry, and distribute it in our overall insight into what God is, means that because God is love, is more like, means that because love is more like God than hate, we slot wrath into a different category of divine names. It is not the same category, in the same category as wisdom, goodness, and love. Wrath belongs to names said improperly of God in the way that when we say God reasons or laughs. So when we say God reasons or laughs, we're speaking improperly about God because God does not laugh the way that you and I laugh or reason the way that you and I reason. So it's a way to speak improperly about God, right? The reason why wrath is said improperly of God is because it has many imperfections which, mu- which must be denied. It is a passion. Deny it. It's a species of sorrow. We deny it. It wills evil toward another. We deny it. But there are also things that we have to affirm that Scripture reveals true about God. Saints, here's what we're trying to uphold. The reality of God's impassibility and his wrath. God's wrath is a visible... Here it is. If you want to go, what does this point mean? Here it is. God's wrath is a visible manifestation of his righteousness directed against sinful deeds. Righteousness is that perfect moral uprightness of God. It is, in fact, holiness. God is holy. He's perfectly righteous. And as the lawgiver, he also upholds his perfection of his moral law through listen to this through justice. When one breaks his law because God is just, wrath is the manifestation of his justice related to his righteousness, related to his holiness, related to his love. Amen. Amen. Which is unchanging, immutable, and eternal. Psalm 119, Psalm 129 declare, He is righteous in all his judgments and all and are righteous and the punishment of the wicked is often ascribed, ascribed to the righteousness of God. Uh, Exodus 6 and 7, Psalm 7, 9, 28 and more. Here in Revelation, let's close this point. Here in Revelation, John is receiving visions of the last day wherein the holiness of God and the right, righteousness of God is revealed by wrath on the day of judgment upon the wicked for their sin. It is a judgment of God that is due to them by one who gives law and ensures that all who violate the law will be punished because he is just and upholds justice. Maybe then you're, you're saying, I still don't understand why the, why the language of wrath is used. God's wrath takes its name from the, Isaiah said this in his, his text, it takes its name from the experience or encounter of the creature, not from the creator. Meaning, God's wrath is, is what the creature calls out when they are confronted with the manifestation of the impassable righteousness of God's justice. Meaning this, the language of wrath is God's accommodation to the creature. He's speaking to you in a way that you and I can understand. So that when his judgment comes, here's what we're going to say. The wrath of God is upon us who are not in Christ. God speaks to you and I in a way that we can understand. It's it's accommodating language. The way that you older ones speak to your littler ones so they can understand exactly what you mean. God speaks in ways that we can understand. I pray that this is helpful. That going forward, when you read of the wrath of God, 
that you'll understand it properly and not improperly. Now, and finally, in closing, what encouragement do we receive from this? Uh, Saints, is this just an an elementary lesson? It really is elementary lesson in theology proper. Is Is that all this was? I pray not. Do you walk away this morning saying, okay, so then I can't say that God is angry and I can't say that God has wrath in him. Is that all you get this morning? I pray not. I pray that when you walk away this morning with this doctrine of divine impassibility, that the deepest counsels of our burdens are comforted. The deepest, uh, our deepest concerns are comforted by this doctrine. We have fragile hearts, don't we? Today we think that God is mad at us. Tomorrow we think, okay, now he's pleased with me. Sometimes we might think because our love towards God has changed that maybe God's love toward us has changed. I don't, I'm not as, I'm not as passionate for God as I used to be. I'm not reading the way I used to. I'm not praying the way I used to. I'm not evangelizing the way I used to. Uh, Maybe my, because my love for God has changed, maybe, maybe his love for me has also changed. His love for you hasn't changed. Even when our love for him ebbs and flows. Even when we feel like, I want to read all of the Bible today and then tomorrow, I I just don't have the desire. That God's not like you and I. That his love for you is immutable. His love for you never changes. Yes, matter matter of fact, um, oh, how he loves us. Yes, he loves us. And we can rejoice that when we understand the love of God, we can understand that it's it's not bending me the way that the song says that it's bending me because he's just intentionally loving me in that kind of way. Instead, God, by his spirit, is transforming me. But God himself is never transformed. God, by his spirit, is making me like Christ. But the son of God is eternal. And eternally blessed. And we are being made like him. He's not being made like us. Nor does he shift and change as we shift and change. You can't cause him to love you more. And you can't cause him to love you less. His love for you is eternally unchanging, unmoved. And it's unbreakable. It's impassable. And there will come a day, saints. And we will rejoice when our eyes see his holiness revealed in condemning, condemming justice of the ungodly godly, when his wrath is poured out. We shall behold him. We shall adore him. I close the sermon in the same way that Pastor Isaiah closed the sermon in 2017 with the words from Henry Light. Swift to its close ebbs. Swift to its close ebbs out of life's little day. Earth's joy grow dim. Its glories pass away. Change and decay all around I see. O Lord who changes not, abide with me. Saints, I pray that as you walk away this morning, you walk away with this, God doesn't change. I pray that you walk away with this, there's nothing that I can do to make him change. And also hold fast to this. And because he doesn't change, his love for me will never change. God help us to remember this. Let's pray.